good morning. Uh, I'm going to start by looking at what I mean by a secular Buddhism. I also speak about a secular Buddha. As I mentioned uh, yesterday evening, uh, I understand the word secular in, in both its senses. One as somehow in, in contrast to what we usually think of as religious, and the other in terms of the more literal meaning of the word, meaning this age or this time. So a secular Buddhism would be one, therefore, that is not overtly religious, at least in the way that word is uh, customarily used. Like in the press, for example, you'll, you'll hear some bishop or rabbi giving a point of view about something, and then, the, then there'll be someone else who will present a more secular perspective. That sense of the word secular. But that, I think, sets up, frankly, an artificial uh, duality or distinction. I don't actually see any contradiction between the idea uh, or any contradiction in the idea of a secular religion. I think you can be both religious and secular at the same time. And I think a lot of us probably are. But that perhaps requires us to rethink what we mean by being religious. Often we think of religious as a person who is a believer, another synonym much used in the press. And this means a person who has taken on board a set of beliefs that can neither be proven nor disproven. That's the curious quality of much religious belief. The belief in God, for example, or in, in a Buddhist frame, belief in the law of karma, rebirth, and so forth, or belief in some ultimate reality. These are the kinds of claims that um, you can't really disprove. It's impossible to disprove that God exists. All you can do is show that much of what previously was attributed to God, we can now find other explanations for. Likewise, you cannot disprove that there is a law of karma at work through millions of lifetimes. It's not disprovable. It's not falsifiable. On the other hand, it's also very difficult to prove it. So belief, or being religious in that sense, means to take um, a kind of a conceptual leap to embrace an idea such as the ones I've mentioned and give them really rather considerable importance. And I think the reason these ideas are attractive, whether it's the idea of God or the idea of karma and rebirth, is because they, they appear to have great explanatory power. They make sense of things. Um, you know, often people come up to me and say, but if you don't believe in karma and rebirth, then how do you explain Mozart? 
Seriously, no, this is a common objection. Um, somehow the, uh, the idea that you know, Mozart is so extraordinary that there must be some other factor X at work in the universe that generates Mozart. And for Buddhists, this would be some brilliant karma in a past life. And for Christians, of course, it would be some kind of divine blessing. So both these systems have um, what appears to be um, an explanatory power. But in fact, and and again, in my own case, I was very persuaded when I was a younger person... Um, in the explanatory power of karma and rebirth. It seemed to explain everything. But that's precisely the problem. If it explains everything, it doesn't really explain anything. There's nothing that cannot be accounted for by it. Ditto God. An example that I find quite useful is how, let's say, we have a, a couple who have a child who, let's say, is diagnosed with some disease like spina bifida or Down syndrome, something quite difficult and painful. A traditional Christian couple would say, we don't understand why this has happened to us, but it must be the will of God. A typical Buddhist couple would say, we don't understand why this has happened to to us, it must be our child's karma. Now you can see here quite clearly how these ideas, these religious ideas, function in a very similar way. Nowadays, um, I think we have a much more compelling explanation for why this is the case. We would attribute it to genetics, hereditary. We understand these things. Um, Maybe not perfectly, and not in all cases, but there are ways of, um, of, 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 of accounting for such events that do have greater explanatory power. And not only do they have greater explanatory power, they give us at least a hypothesis, a working hypothesis, whereby we might actually be able to do something about this situation. We might be able to diagnose parents who are prone genetically to give birth to such kids, etc. Whereas if you believe in karma rebirth or God, that will not, or is not likely, to motivate you to seek the actual causes of these problems. So that is maybe a sketch, perhaps for some of you a caricature, of what religious belief often is. But at the same time, I still feel that the word religious carries in it, for me, a weight and a power that is lacking in its uh, oft-used equivalent, spiritual, spirituality, which I find is a very vacuous term. Religion has, for me, uh, something weighty about it. Spirituality has something rather airy and ethereal about it. What I like about religion is that it addresses the tragic and the dark side of life. 
whereas spirituality doesn't quite do that. So, I would understand religion, or let's say a religious attitude, not as one that requires holding certain beliefs of the kind I just mentioned, but rather it refers to um, a deep commitment to come to terms with, to resolve the great questions of our life. Particularly to come to terms with having been born and having to die. I think a person is religious when they take those sorts of questions with utmost seriousness. And I'm one of those people, for better or for worse, I sometimes think for worse, who has been seized by those questions and they won't let me go. And that may be the case with some of you here too. I don't think these questions are marginal to what it means to be a human being. I think they are utterly central. And of course, in Buddhism, we find that you know, in the very life of the Buddha himself, particularly in the, the well-known legend of the young man who grows up in a palace and then one day goes outside the city walls and encounters a sick person, an aging person, and a corpse. And this shocks him. It's the first time he's supposed to have seen these things. This is not history. And this story is not even a, there in the Pali Canon. But it nonetheless is a very potent myth because it gets to the very heart of what, for me, a religious life is. It's one in which um, one seeks to address those primary questions. What does it mean to have been born? What does it mean to be subject to sickness and age, breakdown, entropy, decay, And what does it mean at the end of all this to die? And I think if we take those questions with a kind of existential seriousness, that to me is a religious commitment. It's not spiritual. That doesn't work in that sense for me. Nor is it philosophical. Nor is it psychological. It is a religious concern. Now, in that regard, I don't see any conflict between um, a secular approach to life, one that is concerned not with overt religious belief, but is concerned with the issues of our age and our time, with that particular definition of religious or religion. I don't feel that to take those questions with utmost seriousness entails any kind of metaphysical beliefs in God or karma or whatever. For me, the Buddha's awakening, or what is usually sometimes called his enlightenment, there's only one word in Pali, we'll probably come back to this point, um, is only intelligible as a response to those primary questions. Again, if we follow the the myth, the Buddha encounters these questions and they, they shake him to his core. When he goes back into the palace, he can't enjoy it anymore. In Ashwagosha's beautiful 
second century poem, the Buddha Charita. Uh, it describes the Buddha as, as, as like a lion whose heart has been pierced by an arrow. At that point, you can't forget these questions. You can't just return to a life of indulgence and forgetfulness and search for status and pleasure because you, something has awoken up in you that is unfortunately not something you can put back to sleep again. And that is often the crisis that people face um, is that their life becomes a question for them in an urgent way. And in the Buddhist case, on the fourth excursion outside the city walls, he sees a wandering uh, samana, uh, loosely translated perhaps as a monk, someone who's renounced the world, basically, and set off in search of some resolution to these primary questions. And he sees that as the way out of his dilemma. And so in his world, in the 5th century BC, this is what you did. You dropped out. You uh, left home and went forth into homelessness, which is the classical definition of becoming a monk or a nun. And that is still true today, in particularly in Asian societies and now also in the West. That if you really want to dedicate yourself to those questions, you can become a monk or a nun. And there you're supported by the laity um, to spend a life committed to those questions. Or at least that's the idea. It may not always turn out to be like that because m monastic institutions you know, have other agendas. A prime one of which is their own self-preservation. So things get complicated. And in fact, in some ways, um, becoming a monk um, or a nun today, you often end up in a place that feels really rather like home again. And one might really ask the question, what is the homeless life today? And by homeless, I mean here not just literally having stepped forth out of a particular building where you grew up. I mean, anyone can do that. Every person who goes off to university in a sense, is going forth into homelessness today. But again, a life, of a homeless life, is for me one that um, uh, is no longer content with anything fixed, any kind of security, or any quest to live a secure way, um, that overrides your primary concerns for responding to these questions, coming to terms with your birth and death, that is, um, in a sense, a compromise. I think in some ways the people in our world who exemplify uh, the homeless life uh, might be artists, for example, who take the risk to leave behind the security of a conventional career to pursue their passion to express, to create, uh, to see the world in a new way. For me, what is um, particularly uh, central to the artistic project in modernity is no longer to produce 
beautiful things, but actually to produce works, be they in literature, in poetry, in painting, in sculpture, in theatre, in film, that enable us or even compel us to look at the world differently. So that's why I like a lot of contemporary art. Um, because in it, at its best, and there's a lot of rubbish, I agree, but at its best, it forces us to look at the world in a new way. I mean, Damien Hirst's shark in a tank of formaldehyde. I forget the title, it's a weird title. But uh, there's something shocking about that. Uh, there's something, that, I mean, you, the, the typical Philistine reaction is, you call that art, yeah, I could have done that. Well, the trouble I'm is you couldn't, because you wouldn't have thought of it. But to actually show the living world, a dead animal in a tank with a steel frame, forces us, shocks us almost into a questioning of our own life as an animal. Uh, and the whole imagery of, of the tank and so on. I don't, I don't want to dwell too much on this. But, and I find the same in literature in film, um, these are the media that, in a way, wake us up. And they do so in a way that I think is in, entirely consonant with what the Buddha is te- teaching. They show us dukkha. Unfortunately, a lot of Buddhist tradition has dismissed art or um, literature as a distraction. Now, that may be true in terms of art or theatre as pure entertainment. But I don't think Hamlet is entertainment. I don't think a great deal of modern literature is entertainment. In fact, it almost invariably confronts us with, with the very heart of suffering. Okay, not Robert Ludlum or your airport fiction, but anything that qualifies as, as literary fiction is dealing with the human condition. It's dealing with the questions of birth, sickness, aging and death. Often in a a very vivid, often almost unbearably poignant way. So the writer, the artist, the playwright, these are people to me who have taken the risk to embark on those careers. Many fail. The majority fail. In terms of reaching a public. I think also, um, to bring it a little closer to home, the, um, the, the, the itinerant meditation teacher, um, without uh, any support from any institution, uh, who lives off dana, I think in some ways, and I don't want to sound arrogant, in some ways I think is, is in a sense in a more homeless situation uh, than a monk or a nun. One has to live by one's wits. One doesn't have any backup. And I, I'm very proud, in a way, of a generation of, of teachers within all different Buddhist traditions who've taken that risk, who've given themselves to the practice of the Dharma at a young age, or they've left a job and a career to do this. And then they, they try to in a sense, just teach, be an example, 
and hope that that will provide for them. But with no support. We're fortunate, of course, in in Europe at least, and possibly here, in having a social security network and so on. But nonetheless, you're kind of out on a limb and you're alone. The Buddha, of course, um, I think envisaged, envisaged something similar. We have, I think, also to get over this idea of monks and nuns. That's, they're not appropriate terms to translate the word bhikkhu and bhikkhuni, which means beggar and beggaress. Someone who begs, someone who is dependent on the generosity of others and leads a homeless life. The, the Buddha did not set up monasteries. And unfortunately, the Christian idea of monk and nun suggests a kind of cloistered monasticism. There were in the Middle Ages, and they still exist to some extent, uh, the mendicant orders, the Franciscans and others, who wandered. That was the model the Buddha gave forth. And there's a beautiful passage that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. I've got it here somewhere. It's in your quotes, if I can find it, which I probably won't. It's, um, oh, never mind. I'll quote it from memory. Um, the Buddha says, says after a monk or, or a nun or bhikkhu or bhikkhuni has completed a basic training of about four or five years, then they should go forth into the world for the welfare of many, out of compassion for the many, and let no two follow the same path. This, I think, is a, a, again a very, a very clear affirmation uh, that the Buddha did not want to create cenobitic, which means residential monasteries, except when weather conditions required that during the monsoon, when they would gather as a community. But for the rest of the time, you, you were out on your own. You were wandering, and you were trying to do good in the world. And that, I feel, lies at the very heart of this idea of going forth from home into homelessness. And um, I feel also we can understand that idea not so much maybe as as an external mode of behavior, but we can understand it uh, psychologically um, as a challenge perhaps for every moment of the day. To what extent do we uh, respond to a situation in a way that uh, ensures that we'll be safe? We won't take risks. We'll stay at home in what's familiar, what's secure, what's known. Rather than, in a sense, uh, responding from somewhere deeper in ourselves, somewhere more true. I can give a very good example of this, that doesn't shed a particularly good light on myself. I was in um, Zurich Airport a few weeks ago. I spent a lot of time in airports. That's, again, another homeless zone. (laughs) And um, I was uh, at a... um, I was waiting for a plane, and I was having a drink. I was sitting at a little table. It was a Saturday night. The airport was very busy. There was a seat free on the other side of the little table and this rather flustered young man, about 30-odd, said, oh, do you mind if I sit here, mate? 
He was English. I said, sure. So he sat there, he got a drink. And then he was a voluble sort of chap. And we started talking. And um, I asked him what he did. And he said, I'm in avionics. Oh, what's avionics, I said. And he said, well, you know, I work on, uh, I work on the software uh, in the aeronautics industry. And at the moment, I'm working on uh, a software for um, guided missiles that will uh, make sure that when they send, that, send these missiles off, it'll hit their targets. Now, um, at that point, I felt I was in a dilemma. Uh, deep down, what I wanted to do was say, do you, do you not find a problem in designing things that will kill people? <laughs> but I didn't, didn't say that. Uh, and I felt for the rest of our conversation, very, uh, uh, what's the word, um, uh, conflicted by this. Rationally, I was saying, well, this is a guy I don't know. We're both just waiting for a plane. Uh, I want to be friendly. Um, uh, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I don't want to upset him. That was, my ra- that, that was my rational, safe mind at work. That was me staying at home, not willing to risk getting into a situation that could be quite unpredictable. Who knows, he might have said, what the hell are you talking about, mate? Bang. I doubt it. He was a nice guy. And I didn't raise that topic. And I've regretted it ever since. I should have done. I should have taken that risk. But I played it safe. And I felt in doing so, I somehow compromised my own convictions. Um, Perhaps I also might have been able to get the guy to think about that, maybe change his mind. Who knows? But that moment is gone now. I'll never meet this chap again. And he'll go on designing software for guided missiles without possibly giving it a thought. That's a small example, but I think it shows that, you know, the, 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 the essential point of, of home and homelessness living from a place in which birth, sickness, ageing and death and your response to them are primary rather than secondary is what it means in a way to lead a religious life. I'm currently reading a a very beautiful book, a biography of the German theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you heard of him? Um... I mean, his life for me is very, very moving. Um, this is a man who is a, a very a brilliant theologian and a, a pastor, a part of the church, but had the misfortune to have been born in 1906. And so when he came of age, he found himself in Hitler's Germany. And, um, you know, 1936... He was actually invited to America by Reinhold Niebuhr, who was the great theologian in the Union Seminary in New York, uh, to have a teaching post there. And he accepted. But he only stayed in America for 26 days before he went back to uh, Hitler 
And eventually he became part of the conspiracy to kill Hitler. <clears throat> I get a bit weepy about this. <laughs> and um, he was arrested after the uh, Valkyrie plot failed and was executed a month before the end of the war. So, so to me, his life is really a life lived uh, uh, with extraordinary uh, authenticity and commitment. And I feel, as I, I, I can't, I find his theology quite difficult to accept. Uh, his beliefs, I couldn't share. But the, the way he lived uh, from that, uh, that primary commitment that, to birth, sickness, aging and death, uh, is is very very exemplary. <clears throat> so, um, going back to this idea of, of of a secular religion, and interestingly, actually, and I only found this out after I started using the word secular Buddhism, Bonhoeffer coined the term secular Christianity back in the late twenties. Um, he was very much uh, against much of what he considered uh, the failings of the church and sought to, you know, to, to really go back to the, the roots um, of his biblical tradition. And uh, I feel likewise that um, Buddhism too has in many ways become rather complacent um, and rather... Uh, I, th I think rather stuck in its traditional orthodox beliefs, in <clears throat> a certain pride and attachment to its uh, institutional structures. And I think we are very much in a position today where if Buddhism is to really live, if it's to become a vital tradition, it has to uh, really go back to try and hear and listen uh, to the Dharma in a fresh way. And I feel that the, um, <clears throat> the core of that lies in the texts we find in the Pali Canon. And that's really what I've spent the last 20 or so years trying to, to study. So, one of the things that I'd like to uh, just uh, sketch uh, this morning is the idea of, uh, of a Buddhism that is founded on what appears, to me at least, to be um, original and distinctive in what the Buddha taught. The problem with the Pali Canon, and anyone who's try to read it, will no doubt know what I mean, is that it is rather big. There's a lot of it. Uh, approximately 6,000 pages in English. A lot of repetition, but um, let's say cut out half, let's say 50% is repetition, you've still got 3,000 pages of text. And these are just the suttas and the, the vinyas the discourses and the texts on monastic training. 
Now, within that body of literature, you get many different voices, as I think I mentioned last night. So, you need some kind of um, uh, what's called a hermeneutic strategy, some uh, tools or some sort of guidelines to help you make sense of this, to help you interpret it. And one of the um, principles I've been using is to um, distinguish between those teachings and those texts that cannot be derived from the cultural world of the Buddhist time. Particularly what we know from the Upanishads and Vedanta. But the teachings that we find that are um, uh, are non-derivative, in other words, the ones that for which, as far as we know, there is no precedent in Indian tradition. So the Buddha's time, there was already very much the idea of, um, of sangsara, of a cycle of birth and death. It wasn't worked out to the same degree of precision that subsequent Buddhist schools developed it. But the basic template was there. The idea of salvation or liberation being... Uh, the freedom from rebirth and um, the doctrine of, of karma. These things were largely in place in a rough form. What the Buddha did, I think, was to go against that in a way, although he continued to use many of those ideas, and to put forth a very different vision of how one could lead a spiritual or a religious life. Remember, one of, one of the things that's distinctive, not only in the Buddha, but also in Jainism, with Mahavira, is that there is a break with the idea that to follow a spiritual or religious life, you have to be born as a priest, or as a Brahmin. So what the Buddha did, and other his contemporaries too, was to actually blow open the whole question of what does it mean to be religious, as it were. Uh, the Buddha was not a Brahmin. He was part of the ruling caste, a, ka- a Katya. And in this regard, I think what he was addressing were not specific concerns of priests, but concerns of all human beings. Um, his teaching is very much uh, one that breaks free of any kind of caste or class identity. He describes his community, and this is also in your text, um, as being like an ocean in which the, when the rivers pour into the ocean, uh, they lose their distinctions. The Ganges dissolves into the sea. And for the Buddha, his teaching is one in which class identity is dissolved. In other words, whether you're a priest or a ruler or a merchant or a worker, once you embrace the Dhamma, that identity is lost. It's the first vision we have really of a, of a classless society. And at the same time, he says that his ocean of his teaching is uh, pervaded in the same way as the, the seas are pervaded by the taste of salt, his teaching is pervaded by the taste of freedom. 
Now, I don't think he means just a kind of spiritual liberation, which is often how that metaphor is explained. But when you look at it in context, then it's also a freedom not to be tied by your class identity. Now, again, this is another way of talking about going forth from home to homelessness. I think our, our, our social status, our role in the world as a teacher, a doctor, a scientist, a psychotherapist, a Dharma teacher, these are also become fixed identities. We become attached to them. And again, I think this metaphor shows that um, in the Dharma, one's concern is no longer about propping up or holding on or displaying your particular persona, the mask you wear, but rather trying to embody uh, a more authentic humanity, one that, I've, as I mentioned, is committed to resolving the question of birth and death. But in terms of the distinctive ideas, I think there are four that really stand out. And that's going to be the basis of what I want to explore this week. The first one is the principle of uh, conditionality, uh, or what in Pali is called paticca uh, samupada, conditioned arising, dependent origination. And in fact, this is so central uh, to the Buddha's teaching that he actually identifies the Dharma with conditionality. Uh, there's a passage here. If you look on it's page 20 in my text, I think your pagination might be different. The section under conditioned arising, wherever that is found. 20. It is 20. Oh, good. Um, the, the first quotation there, we have Sariputta speaking... Now this has been said by him, the Buddha. One who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma and one who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising. So there's a pretty explicit recognition that what really uh, lies at the heart of the Dhamma is conditionality. Now this of course is in complete opposition to the idea of uh, the Dhamma or the Dharma as it would have been understood in Vedanta, which has as its heart the experience of uh, the unconditioned divine, Brahman or Atman. So the Buddha rejects the idea that the religious life is about achieving some kind of mystical union with some unconditioned reality. Uh, in the Upanishads, this is called God, Brahman, Atman. The idea being that the very core of who you are, in your deepest, deepest soul, which is called Atman, is identical to Brahman, to God. It's a very, it's a very beautiful idea, in many ways. But the Buddha completely moves away from that and um, declares his Dhamma to be uh, the conditioned world, not the unconditioned divine or God. That's the Dhamma. 
And the one who sees the Dhamma sees the conditioned world, the phenomenal world, the world of appearances. And if you look at how he teaches meditation, he does again the precise opposite to what many people at that time would have expected. Namely, that meditation is about introspection, seeking to encounter and experience the true nature of consciousness or mind. Whereas the Buddha says, you'd be mindful of your breath, of the sensations in your body, the way you carry your robe and your bowl. If you look under the section on mindfulness, I quote this passage. Uh, He's concerned with paying attention to the specific details of the world which is present to us through our senses. Whereas in Vedanta, the, 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 the world of the senses is illusory. The Buddha never says this, by the way. He never says the world is illusory or like an illusion. He, he does say once or twice it's like an illusion, but that, again, we need to qualify. But he's not dismissing the world. That's where you train your attention. And as you, as you attend to the, this world, the phenomenal world, the appearing world, you notice how it changes, you notice how one thing gives rise to the next, you notice how everything is in process and in flux, you notice that this carries a certain poignancy, a certain tragedy within it, because it will end. Whatever is experienced as pleasure or happiness already has the germ of its own destruction within it. And you recognize also that none of this is me or mine in any kind of final sense. So conditioned arising is, I think, really a a kind of a, a generic term for all of these aspects of existence that the Buddha then uh, encourages us to pay attention to. So that, I think, lies at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. And we'll come back to that. The second point is the uh, process that's embedded within the Four Noble Truths. Again, we're going to spend quite a bit of time looking at that, so I don't want to go into it now. But the way I understand the four truths in relation to this principle of of conditionality is that they are the the practice of conditionality. That the four truths um, are an extension or a translation into practice of the principle of conditioned arising. That each truth is the condition that gives rise to the next. But the important point, at least the point that I consider to be central, is that these four truths are uh, essentially things to do, not things to believe. They're tasks. They're projects. They're engagements. And the first one is to fully know dukkha. The second is to let go of grasping. The third is to stop grasping. And the fourth 
is to create and develop and cultivate a way of life. But don't worry if you haven't jotted all that down. We'll get back to that. All of that is built into the first discourse of the Buddha um, called the turning of the wheel of Dhamma. The third point that I think is original in the Buddha's teaching is the practice of mindfulness itself. And I've already mentioned this, so I don't need to say much more. But basically, it's a, it's a form of meditation that seeks to embrace the totality of our experience moment to moment. Well, if we look at the way the Buddha uh, presented uh, the practice of mindfulness, it starts with the breath, with the body, then it moves onto the feelings, and then it moves into our inner experience, our mind, our mental states. And then it moves to what he just calls Dhamma. And the first thing he mentions about Dhamma is the five aggregates, which some of you will be familiar with, others not. And the five aggregates is basically shorthand for the phenomenal world. It refers to everything that is, you can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, the organs of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and uh, one's experience of that. In other words, the totality of what is occurring in a given moment. So the practice of mindfulness, the practice of awareness, is one that should be seen along a kind of spectrum. Starting with stabilizing attention in the breathing, in the body, but as that attention becomes stabilized, expanding that awareness until it reaches a point where um, you are present and aware of whatever is happening in the moment. Sometimes this is called choiceless awareness. Sometimes it's called open awareness. But that's really um, Dharma Nupasana in the technical language. Uh, awareness or insight into the totality of the phenomena occurring in this moment, in every moment. So, is, as a practice, it's not concerned with reaching into some ultimate or absolute truth. In fact, the Buddha never uses these terms. Unfortunately, Buddhism uh, has become rather invested in this particular doctrine or dogma, uh, but of absolute and relative truth, ultimate truth, conventional truth. But this is an idea that probably started about 200 years after the Buddha, and I think it's an idea that's actually antithetical. I think it actually goes against the very style of how he teaches. He doesn't divide the world into two. What is curious is that you know, Buddhists who consider themselves to be non-dual will then start talking about absolute and relative truth. And uh, I find that very bizarre, frankly. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking that is far more suited to a kind of Vedanta outlook, where you have Brahman and Maya, God and the illusory world. So that two-truth model, even though it may not have been intended uh, to have that uh, association, Nonetheless, it's very difficult not to think of as there being some deeper truth in our world somewhere 
as opposed to conventional and relative truths that we need just to get by from day to day. And I think this has caused a split um, in Buddhist thought that has, in a way, given uh, validation to practices that are trying to, as it were, get beyond the relative conventional world into some deeper truth. And it's it is on that basis that Buddhism begins to slip back into something rather closer to Vedanta. So mindfulness to me, and the way the Buddha presents it, is far more about cultivating an awareness of our phenomenal experience, and nothing more. There's no need to add anything to that. It is adequate. And the fourth point that I think is distinctive is the Buddha's encouragement for his uh, followers to become self-reliant and autonomous. Now this is clearly very much against the principle that we find in in the Vedantic tradition where uh, the whole idea is that you become a disciple of a guru and you sit closely by the side of that guru and you receive the whispered teachings, the transmission. Um, And that's actually what Upanishad means. It means to sit close to someone in order to hear this oral teaching. And that's not a, a model of autonomy. It's a model of dependency dependency upon the authority of the guru. And um, although Theravada Buddhism has largely uh, avoided this kind of teaching model, um, it is nonetheless clearly present in many of the Mahayana schools, uh, both in the Tibetan schools and the Zen schools, uh, the authority of the teacher, uh, which is often absolute and not questionable. And you have to surrender to So the Buddha's idea of the teacher is that of the good friend. And he describes the good friend as uh, the Kalayanamita, as the person who helps you enter the Eightfold Path. That's the purpose of friendship, is to keep you on track, to keep you on the path. And we'll come back to that because the Eightfold Path, of course, is the fourth noble truth. So the, the, when the Buddha describes um, a person who has entered the Eightfold Path, who's become a stream entrant, is the term used, then he describes such a person as having become independent of others in my teaching. Independent of others in my teaching. And there's a passage on page 33 of your text, the bottom of the page, where he says, there are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers, my disciples clothed in white, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in my teaching." 
And of course another passage which probably is the classical passage of the Buddha's emphasis on self-reliance is found in some of his last words where he says you should be an island to yourself. Um, the di- we'll come back probably to that passage. It's on page 39. Therefore, Ananda, you should live with oneself as an island, oneself as a refuge, with no other refuge, with the Dharma as an island, the Dharma as a refuge, with no other refuge. Now, what that means, and again, sometimes this is misinterpreted just to mean do your own thing. It's not what the Buddha is saying at all. But he's recognizing that the only genuine refuge is the Dhamma that you have integrated into your own life. And that is your authority. Remember, the Buddha does not want to appoint a successor. He says to Ananda uh, shortly before he dies, um, Do not think that after my death you will have no teacher. The Dharma will be your teacher. The Dharma, both as a set of ideas and practices and, and philosophy, and also, and more importantly, as what you have internalized and integrated into your own life, so that you become your own authority. And this is not just for monks. Remember, this is to do with lay people, everybody. So that is um, an outline um, of, of, of what I understand as a secular approach to the Dharma, a secular religion, and also um, how that might be founded upon um, these principles that I've outlined just now. Conditioned arising, the Four Noble Truths, the practice of mindfulness, and the authority of um, your own autonomy, your own ability to be reliant upon yourself. So I'll stop here today and um, we can open this up for discussion this afternoon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.